Good morning, JIBC. It is a blessing to be able to preach this morning. Uh, next week, Pastor Dan will be back in the pulpit, back in the saddle, if you will, um, and it will be great to have him back. I, I love hearing his and sitting under his teaching and, and preaching, and I know that you guys do as well, um, but today you are, you're, you're stuck with me. And, uh, and today I'm going to be in Genesis 36, so, so turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 36, which I think is the, the fourth largest uh, chapter in the book of Genesis. Uh, by far, this is the longest text I've ever had to preach in my life, and may ever preach in my life, um, and it's a genealogy, uh, Esau's genealogy, and children in the room. It's great to have you here with us today. Um, any kids, show of hands, uh, ever heard of a genealogy before? Okay, a couple. It's essentially a, a family tree. Anybody ever done like an Ancestry.com kind of thing, their family tree? Uh, I would if I could, but I, I don't know if I know my, who, who my, parent, my grandparents' parents were. And I would blame that on my, my parents, but I don't know if I ever asked. And so, um, you know, my, my family tree, it's got a lot of leaves in, in the way, and I, I can't look that far. But uh, today, we're going we're gonna to look at Esau's genealogy, Esau's sons and his son's sons and his son's son's sons, so on and so forth. Um, and, and I know what some of you are thinking, okay? You know, are we really doing this today? Uh, is, is this genealogy really all there is this morning? Are you actually going to be reading through all 43 of these verses this morning? And my answer to your grumbling and complaining is yes, yes, and definitely yes. Um, but I, I will come clean because God, God knows. Um, he knows this to be true in my own life, that I, I have a record uh, of speeding when I come to the genealogies uh, in Scripture. I can even be known as a reckless reader at times. When, when, when reading the genealogies, and, and, and I'll even try to justify it in my heart because my heart's wicked and deceitful above all else. You know, the names are hard. I can't pronounce half these, these names. We don't know half of the people in these genealogies sometimes, and so can it really be all that important? And I bet I'm not alone. You know, we tend to see genealogies as unexciting complicated and not worth the effort. But let me remind you, church, um, just as I did a few weeks ago, does this chapter not fit under the umbrella of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? That all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Or as Psalm 19 promises that God's word can revive the soul, that it can make the wise simple, it can rejoice the heart, and it can enlighten our eyes. I believe that this text, Genesis 36, can have that impact on our lives today because it's, God's, it's a part of God's word. And I purposefully, I don't know if you caught it, but I purposefully stuck the song, Speak, O Lord, before the sermon, just as a, a reminder that what we're reading and studying this morning is, in fact, God's Word. Genesis 36, 1 through 37, 1 is just as much inspired Word as the rest of Scripture. There's gold in this text, all right? 
there's gold in this text, even in the genealogy of Esau. And, and, we, and, 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 and let me just say this. You need to be challenged by this text this morning. I needed to be challenged by the truth that's in this passage today. But in order for us to understand the truth of Genesis 36 accurately, in order to mine out the gold so that it can, can revive our hearts and change our lives, we have to look at what God intended to communicate through this passage. And a great question to ask yourselves when you're seeking to find a, that God's intended meaning uh, behind a passage is, how would the original audience have seen this passage of Scripture? Because it was given to them first. And, and the Israelites would have, would have looked at a passage like this and, and thought, you know, that wicked brother, twin brother of, of Jacob, that red hairy guy, as the Bible describes him, you know, he had all this land, all these descendants, all these chiefs, and all these kings. They would have noticed this right away from reading this passage. He had all this stuff and all this success. But did Esau have a relationship with the Lord? No, we've covered that, right? And we'll, we'll talk about that some more today. This sermon will be a, a little bit different than what we're used to, but we'll, we'll look at Esau and the life of Esau because this is the, the final time that we'll see him in our, in our text as we've been going on in this series. And, and I attached Genesis 37.1 to, to this sermon today because not because I thought, well, what if, what if I just did 44 verses instead of 43? But it was because I, I thought that these two brothers here are being compared or, or contrasted side by side. And so Genesis 36, 1 through 37, 1. If you're taking notes, you'll see two different sons living two different lives so that you this morning would see which way you ought to live your life today. Two different sons living two different lives so that you'll, this morning, you would see which way you ought to live your life today. And there'll be three points today because we're Baptists and that's what we do. Um, and these points will illustrate those two different ways of living. And so, Let's look at our text together with that in mind. You know, one time I said, let's, let's read our text together. And we ended up all doing it. I didn't mean to do that. What if we did that with this? That would be interesting. Um, we, I, I'll, I'll, I'll read the text today, um, if you don't mind. And uh, you know what, too? I, to, in order to help you with the flow of this passage, I'm going to kind of help you with the sections that this is broken down into. So this first section, verses 1 through 8, deals with Esau and his, and his immediate family, okay? Starting in verse 1, these are the generations of Esau that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elan, uh, the Hittite, Aholivamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zivian, the, Hit, uh, the Hivite, and Basemot, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaiot, and Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemot uh, bore Ra'uel, and Aholivamah uh, bore Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. And these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into the land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. And then in this next section, the second section of this text, 9 through 14, are Esau's sons and his grandsons. Starting in verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. 
These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of uh, Adah, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of uh, Vesmat, uh, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Canaz. Timna was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. Uh, she bore uh, Amalek to uh, Eliphaz. And these are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. And these are the sons of Basemat, uh, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholivamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. And then, just as it opens in verse 15, this third section are the chiefs that descended from Esau. Verse 15, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, uh, Taman, uh, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, uh, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons. The chief Nahat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemat, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholivamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Yeush, Shalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholivamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. And these are their chiefs. And then the fourth section in verses 20 through 30, we have the chiefs of the Horites, which uh, means, I believe it to mean um, the cave people. They were the inhabitants, the original inhabitants of the land that Esau moved down to. Okay, and so that's what we have in verses 20 through 20, uh, 30, which says, These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Cheval, Zivian, Anah, sister was Timna. These are the sons of Shoval, Alvan, Manahat, uh, Eval, Shepho, and Anam. These are the sons of Zivian, Ayah, and Anah. And he is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zivian, his father. These are the children of Anah, Deshon, and Aholivamah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Deshon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Karan. These are the sons of Etzer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Deshan, Atz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Latan, Shaval, Zivian, Anah, Deshon, Etzer, and Deshan. And these are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. And next we have the kings that descended from Esau's family, 31 through 39, which says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinevah. Bela died, and Yovav, the son of Zerah, of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Yovav died, and the Hasham of, uh, of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Hasham died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city being Evit. Uh, Hadad died, and Samla of Mesrika reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul uh, of Rehoboth uh, on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetavel, and uh, daughter of Metred, daughter of Metzahav. And then we get to our final section here in verse, uh, in verse 40. 
which is the final list of influential chiefs in verses 40 through 43, which says, These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Yethet, Oholivamah, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Timon, Mithsar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. <sighs> and then, in chapter 37, verse 1, we have Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Let's pray. Father, we just read a, a lengthy portion of Scripture, and yet, despite its length, we're thankful that you put it in front of our eyes this morning. And, and I pray that the truth we glean from this passage would penetrate our hearts deeply today so that we would all the more live for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The first point that is clearly, I think, established in this passage is that Esau seemed to have a, a very successful life. Uh, point number one, Esau's success. Um, Esau's success. This, again, is something that the Israelites would have, have been able to pick up on right away. Just through a, a clear, simple reading of this passage, they would have seen Esau and all his descendants and that they were pretty successful. And, and if you're parachuting into our, our Genesis series this morning, let me just get you caught up for a second. Uh, and it'll just be a general overview. Um, but going back to Abraham, right? God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham had his son Isaac. And Isaac got married to Rebekah. And then Rebekah got pregnant with twins. Right, and, and there's a text in Genesis 25, which is really helpful for our passage today. So I'm going to read it. Genesis 25, 22 to 23, which tells us, The children struggled together within her. And she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other. The older sh shall serve the younger. It's pretty amazing, but not shocking, because it's God prophesying this, right? That that's exactly what takes place. Later on in Esau's life, he'll, he'll take two Canaanite women and a, a daughter of Ishmael. And it's from those three women that the nation of Esau, which would be called Edom, would come into being. And, and, and it, I don't know if you caught that in this reading this, this of 43 verses, but it's mentioned six times. Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. You know, uh, in verse 1, verse 8, verse 9, verse 19, verse 43, so many different times. Why? Why is that emphasized? Well, one, because I think, you know, it, it reaffirms that what was said in Genesis 25 actually did come to be. And also, I think, again, God wants Israel to be reminded that of, of who their neighbors are. Seir, where Edom or where Esau moved to, it was right on the border of Canaan, the promised land. And so they, they would have been neighbors. And so God's almost telling them this is their origin. The, of, of your neighbors over here, this is their story. And, and take note that later on in Deuteronomy chapter 2, it states that God is the one who gave Esau this land called Edom, which was Seir. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, God calls the Israelites to turn northward after leaving Egypt, right? And commanded the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in, in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful, do not contend with them, check it, for I will not give you any of their land, no, 
not so much as, as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And, and I want to make this clear. Esau was not given the, the, the land of Edom because he had faith in God. Esau didn't have faith, right? He was not a part of the covenant promise of, of God. He left the covenant promise. And I, and I think that the Israelites, again, reading this this, this genealogy, reading this text, they would have seen Esau's moving out of the promised land as, 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 as almost like a, a work of God. Uh, to see God's sovereign hand pr- uh, providentially redirecting the Edomites out of the promised land. Right, because what do we know about the land of Canaan? What do we know about the promised land? It wasn't, it wasn't promised to Edom and Esau and his descendants. Who was it promised to? The Israelites, right? And so, side note here, just how easy, how easy is it? And how easy can we be, become all worked up when things in this world seem to be all out of, out of place and out of sorts? You know, Edom was in the, in the, in the land of Canaan, even though that wasn't his, his land, right? He, seemed, he was out of place there. And God would eventually move him somewhere else. But how, how often can we get all worked up when something is out of place? You think of politics and things, and you look at, like, you're just so upset. We can get so frustrated at times that this over here is out of whack, and that over there is just crazy. And we can become all consumed with things like this, that it's almost almost as if God isn't on his throne, right? And it's okay to be concerned. We should be aware. It's even good. It's it's okay to have a a godly hatred towards the, the sinful things that take place in our world today. But what should we always keep in mind? And what would the, the Israelites who are reading this genealogy be reminded of? That God is absolutely always in control. Always providentially working out things for his glory. No matter how big the entity is or authority, whether it's a president, a queen, an emperor, or the, the father of Edom, Esau, right? God is constantly in control. I think of Proverbs 21 verse 1. Which still rings true. The king's heart, it says, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills. God is in control over the highest authorities of this world. Because he is the highest authority. And this is a a great comfort to us. It should be. J.I. Packer once said, to know that nothing happens in God's world um, apart from God's will may frighten the godless but it stabilizes the saints. It, it's some, it's such a, it should be such a comfort to be reminded of this. And we shouldn't lose that heavenly perspective. And so Esau relocated to Seir under the, under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. And this land, Edom, it happened to be kind of a, a cool place. A really neat place. Kind of amazing place even. Um, let me tell you why. Three reasons. Edom had uh, parts of it that were great for cultivation. It's a great place to farm. Um, Number two, it was kind of like Shechem, if you remember a couple messages ago. Uh, Shechem was a a prime place because it was in in the middle of all these trade routes, and so was Edom. It It was put right between the trade routes of Syria and Egypt, and so they would have benefited from all the business taking place and all the trades, and so that would have helped them out. But, but, what made Edom more unique than any, any other place was their natural strongholds that they had. In the center of, of Edom, 
that where the main city was, the capital, it was surrounded by these red sandstone walls that rose up over, I think, 5,000 feet above sea level. And, and from a military standpoint, Edom was, was you couldn't penetrate it. Um, one historian said that the, because of the narrowness of the canyon leading to the city, it would have been possible for a dozen men to defend the city against a whole entire army. The main city, uh, Salah, it was the capital of Edom. It was hidden away in the most inaccessible part of this sandstone, which would later be called Petra, meaning rock or unshakable rock. And to get to Petra, again, you had to get through these, 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 these canyons, these narrow canyons, which um, was one mile long. And on average, from, from one side of the wall to the other, it was about 15 feet across. And you could find caves on the sides of the walls where they would have lived. Maybe the Horites, who are the cave people. And you could visit this place today if you have money. Or, or like me, you could just YouTube it and, 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 and uh, watch National Geographic or something. But, but it's, it's hard to think of any other place in the ancient Near Eastern world that would have been more safe and more secure than a place like Edom. And, and do you remember also that other natural resource? Did you, did you catch it in verse 24? That guy named Anah, he found these hot springs. Anah, he is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibi and his father. Another natural resource. And Anah was the father-in-law of Esau. And he discovered this, this water, these hot springs in the desert part of Edom. He must have been a hero for him to be included in, in, in this, in this uh, genealogy. And maybe an indicator that the move to Seir was a successful one. And don't forget, Esau married into that family of success. He married into that family of success. This is, this is all working out then. Uh, you know, you can kind of see it through the genealogy. This is all working out for Esau. The land's fertile. It's great for business. You got all these, these, these natural wonders that serve for, for national security. And they've got hot tubs there. Right? I mean, this place is great. And not only was the land nice, but let's look at Esau's descendants for a moment. Esau had a lot of descendants, right? And, and I want you to know this. You know, he got a little bit of a head start on Jacob. Um, you know, 40 years, he started having kids 40 years before Jacob. That means that when Jacob started having kids, Esau's kids were already having kids, and so Jacob was a little bit behind, and, and, and look at, just look at the size of this genealogy. It took us a while to get there, right, to read it all. But it's full of Esau's family, chiefs, kings, and they, and I, as the Israelites would have read this, when they came across the word kings, you hear that, kings? Maybe that didn't matter to you, but that would have mattered to them. Because didn't Israel want kings? I mean, if, 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 if the Israelites weren't already jealous because, you know, Edom had hot tubs. When they heard and saw that Edom had kings, that's, they're like, you know, we want those. those we, want, we want kings. In fact, if you know your Bible, what do they say later on? We want kings to be like all the other nations. Maybe they had their neighbors in mind when they said that. And look at how verse 31 is, 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 is written here. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites, you know, 
kind of like a snooty kind of way that it's, it's written here. And if I did the math right, which I'm not good at math, but when Esau started producing kings, even if it would have been the, the third generation, it wouldn't be 800 years until Israel got its first kings. And, and, and then, you know, later, you know, 800 years, who was their first king? None other than the tall, handsome, young, successful Saul, right? What an amazing king he turned out to be. Uh, he was a train wreck. And so Esau, he's got, he's got the successful land and the people. He's got kings. He's got chiefs. Chiefs being like tribal leaders. That's how I would understand it. And let's not forget, he also had possessions. Look at chapter 1, verse, verse uh, 6. Because it, the text says that it's the possessions that prompted the move to Seir. It says, then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his, and his livestock and all his cattle and all his acquired goods, which he had accumulated in the land of Canaan. And he went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. You know, in the eyes of the world, all right, Esau was successful and he lived a really good life. He had an unbelievable home, a prominent family filled with chiefs and kings. You know, they would have referred to Esau as, as, as Father Esau, right? He had so many possessions that he needed a country of his own to put it all, you know? But church, does that make it, 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 does this life make one successful in the eyes of God? It might, it might be, be considered success in the eyes of the world, but is that what, what God looks at as success, all these things? Speaking of possessions and, and stuff, I read the story this week of a man named Dan Crawford who lived from 1870 to 1926, and most of his life he spent as an African missionary. And when it, when it came time for him to return back to Great Britain, he was describing to this old, old Bantu uh, uh, tribesperson the, the king of uh, or the, what kind of world he was about to return to. And he was trying to, it was almost like he was trying to explain it to this old Bantu uh, man so that like in order to get a response out of him, to make like kind of to wow him, right? And he was talking to him about all the ships that ran on the water, and the ships that even were running under the water, like submarines and ships above, like planes, talked about their homes and all the conveniences that they had, right? Running water, electricity. And, you know, Crawford's just really laying it all out there, like, you, you just, you, like, if you could only imagine, right? And he's explaining this all to the man, and he expected to see some reaction, but the old Bantu man said in response, is that all, Mr. Crawford? And Crawford responded, we, yeah, I think it is. And the old Bantu said, well, Mr. Crawford, you know that to be better off is not to be better. To be better off is not to be better. And isn't that the truth? Esau had all this stuff. He had all these successes in his life and in the lives of his family. But was he better off for it? Hebrews 12, you can jot this reference down. Hebrews 12, 16 through 17 says, Let there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, for you know that even afterwards 
When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And this really leads me to the second point of our sermon this morning. First, we looked at Esau's success, or his apparent success. Next, let's look at Esau's sin. We know that Esau thought very little of his birthright, so little that he gave it up for food, which showed how Esau viewed God and the promises that he made to his father. He took also Canaanite wives, even despite his, his parents' disapproval. You know, Genesis 26, 35 says Esau's wives made life bitter for Isaac, his father, and Rebekah, his mother. Kent Hughes kind of describes Esau this way. Esau was a guy that lived for what was before him, be it a hunt or a meal or the company of women. He had no sense for the spiritual no eye for the unseen, no vision, only earthbound dreams. To, to take a line from the book of Judges, he did, and, and he did what was right in his own eyes. He indulged in his fleshly desires. That's, when you boil it down, that's the life of Esau. But, but it's really the life of any unbeliever, essentially, isn't it? Even living you know, Esau in a godly house like Isaac's, probably being told about Abraham and his father uh, and, and the stories that come with that growing up as a kid, Esau rebelled against his parents and lived life Esau's way. And it's really interesting when you look at all 81 of these, ver uh, these names that are used in Esau's genealogy, and, and rest easy, I'm I'm not going to go through each one of those and tell you the meaning of each one. We, we wouldn't leave here today if I did. But, but you know, remember, in, and we've taught this before, but names meant something back then. You know, we, we name our kids names because, you know, sometimes we'll name our kids something obscure to, to really stand out. It's like the trendy thing to do, or maybe it was. I'm not trendy. Um, or, or, you know, we'll pick a name because it sounds cool or something. But, but back then the meaning of a name meant everything. It was very important. And when I took, I took like half of a day to study all these names, and it kind of breaks my heart that I'm, I'm not going to tell you what all of them mean right now, but I did find something interesting. Two of the names out of 81 have the word God in their name. Re, uh, Reuel means friend of God, and Yehush means God helps and these two kids, Reuel and Yehush, they were born to Esau when he lived in the land of Canaan under the influence of his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Do you see where I'm going here? When Esau and his family move, however, the names of their kids have nothing to do with God. More so, they just deal with things that Esau loved, which was nature. Just, I can't help myself. I'm going to give you a few of them, Okay. Zivian means hyena. Uh, Ayah means hawk. Quran means turtle. Aran means mountain goat. Elan means a place where deer are around. Zepho means bald. That doesn't have anything to do with nature. I should have put that in here. But, but if you go further into the genealogy, we'll see names like Elan, which means wickedness. We'll see Baal Hanan which means Baal, the God of Baal, is merciful. That the God of Baal is gracious. And he was a king reigning over Edom. 
And so you could kind of just see the trajectory of the nation just by looking at these names and studying them. And so this was the way of the life for Esau and the life of his descendants who were lost in their sin. Edom uh, was and became a wicked nation who again were neighbors with Israel. And Israel and Edom would experience many major conflicts just uh, throughout its history, just like Jacob and Esau experienced conflict. You know, 500 years after Esau died, you'd have Moses leading Israel up from the Exodus, right? And the Edomites would refuse the, the Israelites to pass through their land in Numbers 20. Saul, the first king, he would battle with the Edomites. David would be successful in, in, in conquering the Edomites for a time. Later on, when God would use the, the, another nation, the Babylonians, to discipline the Israelites because of their sin, the Babylonians would take the southern kingdom captive during the deportation to Babylon, and the Edomites blocked the crossroads, cutting off the route of, uh, of the fugitives of the Israelites who got away and delivered them back to Babylon. That's written about in Obadiah 1.14. And in fact, much of Obadiah is written um, to judge the Edomites for their sin, for their wickedness, and their pride. In fact, if I had the time, Ezekiel 35, verses 3 through 5, talks about even despite their natural defenses that God was going to judge them. The wickedness of the Edomites and their descendants, it's, it's not just an Old Testament thing. It even extends into the New Testament, into the Gospels. I don't know if you know this or if you recall, but Herod the Great, he was, he was an Edomian, which is synonymous for he was an Edomite. His lineage would go back to Esau. And Herod the Great was, was the Herod that, that sentenced all the, the children who were two years and under to be, to be put to death in the land of, of Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas in order to kill and find Jesus, right? To find and kill Jesus. And so I just want to paint that picture for you of how the Edomites are, are pictured in the Bible. In our passage, we see them as, as successful in the world's eyes, but, but we know that the state of their hearts were anything but, but successful. They were wicked. And, and I don't know about you, but the question that I tend to ask when you look at someone who's wicked but successful is, how does that work? You know, how does this person over here, have you ever been there? How does this person over here have so much stuff, so much wealth, so much success, and yet he's godless? And then me, I love the Lord, and I'm just like getting by by the skin of my teeth. Is that the phrase? Right? And that's not a, a new question. It's not a new struggle. Uh, we read the psalm a little, a little bit ago um, in our scripture reading and prayer. But Psalm 73, the psalmist, who I think is Asaph, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Again, you put your feet in the sandals of the Israelites. They could have been envious of, of Edom and the Edomites as they read a genealogy like this one. Jacob could have looked at his brother who didn't have a relationship with God and, and, and saw that God allowed Esau to settle down in Seir. And, and maybe he thought back to when he tried to settle down in Shechem and it turned out to be a disaster, right? Maybe he thought, you know, why does big brother get all this stuff? Why am I still a sojourner, a stranger in the land of promise when he's got all this stuff? 
And we tend to compare our lives with others and covet the things that belong to others instead of contenting ourselves in the Lord. And, and, and I want to I, I tell you that Psalm 73, that psalmist, he goes on to say in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and, and, and my portion forever. He's, in other words, God's everything I need. We need to remember that, don't we? And, he, and he'll actually go on to say in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's another note, a side note here. You know, we look at celebrities and, and the rich and the powerful and the famous, and it's like there's never an end to their, their success, and they're just, there's nothing ever bad that could ever happen to them. What does the psalmist speak here? What's the truth that the, the psalmist speaks here? Is, is the things that we have in this life, are they eternal? No. And there is an end to their success eventually. Esau's life appeared to have everything. It had successes that every man in this world craves. Fame, power, security, family, comforts, and on and on. But it was wrought with sin and it was destined for eternal destruction. And in the end... What did Esau in his life really possess? Nothing. Nothing of eternal value. And that's true of any life without God through Christ. You'll enter in the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 36, right? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then then what? To forfeit his soul. Esau treasured the things of this world. He left his home and the promise of his father, and he pursued the successes and treasures of this world. Esau's eyes were set on the things of this earth. He had become friends with the world and the things of the world, which only brings enmity with God. And that's the life of Esau. And with that, let me, with the limited time that we have left, let me turn to the patriarch Jacob. First point, Esau's success. Second point, Esau's sin. Third point, Jacob's sojourning. Pastor Dan didn't give me 37.1, so I'm going a little off-road here. Stay with me. And uh, hopefully I'm not going too far off the reservation uh, by adding one more verse to an already massive passage. But, but look at the contrast here in 37.1. You have in 36, you have Esau that has all this stuff, right? Everything that we just talked about. Who pitched his tent, settled down, who has all these apparent successes, but doesn't have God. And then in, in 37.1, you have Jacob who lived in the land of his father sojourning in the land of Canaan. Jacob here in this passage is still a stranger. He's still a sojourner in the land of Canaan, a stranger of the land of promise. When Esau was prospering, Jacob was in exile, remember, 14 years, working for Rachel, and then it got complicated, and then he had four wives, or two two wives, and it was complicated. And then he had 12 12, uh, uh, sons that came from that, and one daughter and right, and, and then he would eventually make his way back to Bethel. He would, he would amass, he would get uh, rich in cattle and livestock over time. Then he would make his way to Hebron where his father was living. But they were still nomadic farmers, right? They were still sojourners. And, and spoiler alert, right? We're jumping from Genesis to Romans, so I don't feel bad about it. But um, you know the story, right? The history. You know, what would happen? The land would become... Uh, you know, uh, there would be a huge uh, drought that would negatively impact everything. And they would, they would have to flee to Egypt to, to spare their lives. 
Um, and God would greatly multiply the people of, of Jacob just as he promised he would. But Jacob's descendants would be in Egypt for like 400 plus years, right? As slaves. Jacob wouldn't possess any of the land of Canaan for over 500 years. And so Jacob was a child of promise, but he had not yet obtained that promise. And so Jacob, like his father, sojourned in the, land, in the promised land, ultimately having being forced to content himself in the Lord and trust in the promises of God. Jacob, as we've read, he's, he's far from perfect. Uh, he's, he's kind of a knucklehead, right? But Jacob was a man of faith, and God loved him. I mean, God's testimony in, in, in Romans 9 is, right, Jacob I loved. And church, we too are sojourners in this land. This place is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So you can take this world, right? Just give me Jesus. The, the world does not compare to the eternal promises of God. It is far better to be a stranger to this world than to be a stranger to Almighty God. It's it, it, to be separated from Him for all eternity. So, so let's sojourn in light of the promises of God. I, I want to read a, a quote by James Montgomery Boyce talking about the blessings and while looking at the, the life of Esau. He says, If God blesses so abundantly those who are not chosen, what is the magnitude of His blessing for those who are chosen? If non-spiritual people experience such outpourings of merely common grace, how great must the special grace of regeneration be? Nothing compares to the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And let that motivate us as we sojourn here on earth, as we await the fulfillment of these promises, church. At this time, Jacob's worldly possessions seemed to be kind of nothing in comparison to Esau's. But God would remain faithful and true. Israel would eventually dwell in the promised land and his descendants would be great and their nation would become even larger than that of the nation of Esau. Jacob, again, he had faith in God and in the future promises of God. And don't forget what those promises were. The Abrahamic covenant, the promises given to Abraham, right? Threefold. They'd become a great nation. They'd have a special great land. And then what, what was the third one? Don't forget, Right? That there was a future seed coming through the, the, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that would bless all the other nations. Right, That all the other nations would be blessed through this future seed, this future descendant coming through this line. Just real quick with me. Press fast forward in your Bibles and turn to Luke 23, verse 6. Let me show you this seed who is the Savior of the world. And I'm taking you here to this passage because it's here where you will find Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, who murdered all those babies that we just talked about. He also was an Edomian, an Edomite, who was ruling over the Galilean district. He's the guy that killed John the Baptist and lopped his head off. And it's here where you'll find King Herod of, 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 of the lineage of Esau interacting with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this passage, it precedes the event of Christ's crucifixion. And it says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. 
because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Gross, right? Here, here, here you have Herod, who is an Edomite, versus you know, God in flesh, God incarnate, coming from the line of Jacob. And when reading this passage to the human eye, right, it, would have, it could have seemed like Herod was greater than Jesus. Herod Antipas' estimated income in our modern-day equivalency is like eight figures. It's something ridiculous. While Jesus had nothing. Herod, Herod had power and reign over the city of Galilee, and Jesus had just been abandoned by his friends. But, but Herod could mock Jesus, Herod could beat Jesus, but Herod could not stop Jesus from what he came here to do for you and for me. And that is that he would lay down his perfect life as a sacrifice for sins so that our sins could be forgiven and that we can have a saving relationship with God through the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the seed that would bless the nations. He is the light of the world, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had faith in the future promises of God, and so his life belonged to God, while Esau, on the other hand, lived life for himself. And friends, this morning, which life do you live today? Because there's only two ways. And it's, and it's either one or the other. There's no in between. It's not a little bit of this and, and a little bit of that. You either walk by faith or you walk by sight. And for every generation, the challenge is the same. To see that there's more than life in acquiring stuff that will one day be lost. Acquiring stuff will, will never satisfy. You'll always be found wanting more and more to fill the void in your life that only Christ can fill. The only thing that can satisfy your souls this morning is Christ. The only thing worth treasuring in this life is Christ, who is our eternal reward. There's nothing I'd rather have than Jesus. Nothing compares. Again, the words of Christ, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Today in our passage, we saw a man who in the eyes of the world lived a rather successful life, but because of his sinful life, he really had nothing. He was really just storing up for himself wrath on the day of judgment versus the man who was willing to sojourn in, his, in, in this life and wait and trust in the promises of God. I, I'm, I'm confident, and this might have been a long passage and a long sermon, but there's nothing more important that you could hear today or this week than what we've talked about this morning. Because depending on which, which life you're living, it has eternal ramifications for your soul. And if you would like to know more about the life that leads to eternal life, that leads to Christ, come seek me out after the service. Come find one of the elders, and we would love to tell you about Christ, who is the only truth, who is the only way was the only way, the only truth, and the only life, right? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning to be reminded of how blessed it is to be sojourners in this world that we live in now. I'm thankful, Lord, that this, is, this broken, sinful world is not, not our home. Thank you for reminding us today that you are our greatest treasure. Help us, Lord, to set our mind on things that are above. Help us to live in light of who we are as children of God. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that might be still living a life that's treasuring everything else that this world has to offer, I pray that you would convict their hearts, humble them, and help them see that their greatest need is Christ. It's in your name I pray. Amen.